0: Welcome to Interleaved, where we take a deep dive into topics from the Dafyomi with modern-day sages of the Torah and the world. i the El Zelis Paley. On today's episode, making light of a heavy holiday.
1: People use Hanukkah in a different kind of way. I mean, it ends up being, you know, it's still Hanukkah, but the whole question of dedication emerges again as a question in a new way.
0: One would think that Passover would have nothing to do with Hanukkah. But as we've seen over the past year, the Talmud has no shortage of surprising connections. In fact, the very first page of Tractate Psachim begins with a debate about the meaning of the word or, which is typically translated as light, the very light that Hanukkah, the festival of light, celebrates. And the commonalities don't end there. So as learners of the Daf Yomi strap themselves in for four months of studying everything there is to know about Passover, we thought we'd ease their anxiety with some holiday cheer. And who better to share that holiday chair with a historian of the holiday itself, Dr. Diane Ashton. Dr. Ashton is a professor of religion studies and former director of the American Studies Program at Rowan University. She is the author of multiple books, including the first modern biography of the American Jewish education trailblazer, Rebecca Gratz, and Hanukkah in America, a history. Dr. Ashton, welcome to the podcast.
1: I'm so glad to be here.
0: So if all you knew about Passover was the first Mishnah in Tractate Psachim, you might think it's not that different from Hanukkah. Both involve a home-based ritual, performed at night, and centered on a candle. In the case of Passover, the candle is used to search for a chametz, bread or other leaven grain products, to be burnt the next day. While on Hanukkah, of course, simply lighting the candle fulfills the obligation. While the obligation is to light facing a street or other shared space, to share the miracle with others, Hanukkah as a holiday has become less private and more public-facing as time has gone on. Think menorah lightings in the town square, Hanukkah dinners at the White House, even giant inflatable dreidel decorations. Can you trace the history of the celebration of Hanukkah in America in terms of how public Jewish people were about celebrating the holiday?
1: Well, that's a very interesting question. I think starting in the 1820s and 30s, we can talk about Hanukkah celebrations in synagogue. Uh, We can see that A new way of doing Hanukkah emerged in Charleston, in the synagogue, Congregation Beth Elohim. And they were a group of folks who had broken away from the congregation because they wanted to have some changes to it. They didn't understand Hebrew. They needed something they could understand going on in the synagogue. And so among the changes they made was Uh, a collection of new songs, new hymns in English. The point was being in English. (laughs) Uh, So the Hanukkah hymn was written by Panina Moisa. She wrote most of the hymns in the hymnal that they produced. And her hymn uh, spoke to a problem that Jews were facing in Charleston, South Carolina. It was one of the first instances we see of Jews using Hanukkah to address problems they're having with American culture at large. Talk about the public face. We can take that in a few different directions. So we see that publicness about Hanukkah comes in a number of different ways, but Hanukkah in America, I think, does have this double face. It has the face to the Jewish family at home where the menorah is lighted, But it's always, in some ways, also always looking out at American culture, at the way American culture is impinging upon Jewish life.
0: That's such an important framing. It was interesting. I read it in an article in The Atlantic um, that mentioned your research, discussing how early in the reform movement days in America, um, rabbis in Cincinnati kind of brought Hanukkah into the synagogue, you know, before that, um, certainly the menorah was lit in synagogues. Um, but other than that, most of the rituals and customs surrounding the holiday really did take place in the home. Um, so could you speak a little bit more about, you know, how that happened? How ritual kind of shifted from the home to the synagogue?
1: Well, the synagogue was always a place where a menorah would be lighted. And, you know, there's special prayers for Hanukkah that are added to the Sabbath service for Sabbath Hanukkah. So it wasn't as though Hanukkah was totally absent from the synagogue at all. But after the Civil War, we see two rabbis in Cincinnati, Isaac Wise and Max Lilienthal. They were really very strong, powerful characters in American 19th century Jewish culture, for sure. Very inventive people, both reformers and both had national Jewish magazines and newsletters. This is the important part. Um, So Lilienthal was a a really beloved character. Wise was a very strong leader, but he had a kind of prickly personality. Lilienthal was beloved by all accounts that we have. Um, And he was invited to speak at one of the Christian churches in Cincinnati. He may have been I don't know if he was the first Jewish rabbi to ever do that, but he did. And it was in December. And he saw them putting together activities for their kids. And he was very impressed. And he wrote in his magazine, these activities for their children keep their children in happy anticipation of their holidays. What are we doing? Nothing. And so he started a Hanukkah festival in the Sunday school. And most of the faculty for those schools were women. The rabbi would lead, of course, what was going on and supervise it all, but it was all carried out by women of the congregation who worked with the children and who actually taught the classes. So we see this alliance of rabbis and women emerging over Hanukkah in these congregations. And that alliance is really what gives Hanukkah its power in the U.S. What happened in Cincinnati with creating a Hanukkah festival was that he put together a pedagogical assembly for the kids in the religious school. It would teach them about the menorah lighting. It would teach them about the holiday and the Maccabees. I'm sure they'd already heard about this from their teachers in classes, but this was kind of a broad supervisory additional oomph to the uh, the story. Uh, Students would act it out in some cases. They would have activities that had been created by the teachers so that it would be a kind of enjoyable, but educational assembly. And at the end of it, the kids were given food, (laughs) oranges, (laughs) which was like a miracle in Cincinnati in the 19th century. And he thought it was very successful and he did it every year then Wise picked it up and did it in his congregation at the same time. And as I said, both of these guys had national magazines. Lilienthal's, in particular, the Sabbath visitor was particularly directed towards families with kids and also could be read in religious schools around the country. And so they really promoted this in their magazines. And in Lilienthal's case, he invited people to create their own Hanukkah celebration in their religious schools, to write about it, and send in their descriptions of what they were doing to the Sabbath visitor. So the Sabbath visitor became this vehicle that promoted this activity around the country, among all the Reformed congregations and among all the Jewish families who subscribed to this magazine, they could read what each other were doing, be inspired by it. And it became a kind of shared experiment in promoting Hanukkah in a new way that really energized American um, Jews and certainly Reformed Jews in this time period. And it was highly successful. The, the Sabbath visitor continued for many decades and put the engine on Hanukkah celebrations among American Jews in the 19th century.
0: Wow. I love that model of religious empowerment. It's something that I'm sure a lot of Jewish leaders are looking for right now.
1: You know, I think that this that the, the COVID conditions are really forcing people to be very creative, And it's pushed us all onto Zoom and other electronic technology that some of us may not have been as familiar with or may not have used it as much, even if we were familiar with it. And similarly to the way the magazines were used in the 19th century, I think web technology is being used now and that this really can really push a development in a more interesting way. And I I think this actually, might be a good thing.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I'm totally on board with it. There's a really great line in your book about how the celebration of Hanukkah in America, quote, undermined traditional religious authority and empowered ordinary Jews. Um, So this is a great example of that. Are there other examples you know of as, you know, history went on, I guess, Jewish leaders using Hanukkah to empower ordinary Jews in their religious lives?
1: I think there are quite a few examples, um, but I think one that kind of shows the range of this that might be kind of unexpected are the Chabad enormous candle lighting menorahs. I I mean, this step by Chabad to put these gigantic menorahs in public spheres, invite the mayor, (laughs) feed Black kiss to everybody, sing you know, the blessings. This was revolutionary because it came at a time when for decades, the standard American Jewish posture at Hanukkah was to be totally opposed to religion in the public sphere. From the 50s and earlier, but certainly in the 50s when the Jews moved to the suburbs, And their kids are now minorities in public schools where they're singing hymns. For the longest time, American Jews are really working very hard to try to get public schools to stop asking their children to sing hymns, to get Christian celebrations, Christmas decorations out of the schools, get rid of the Christmas pageants stop wishing me a Merry Christmas when I check out at the grocery store. That was the posture for several decades. And then along comes Chabad and says, no, we have a great holiday. We are going to promote this. We're going to put this forward and you guys are all going to be embarrassed into celebrating it. And it worked because it turned out that Christian Americans were a heck of a lot happier with Jews who were celebrating Hanukkah than they were with Jews who were trying to get them to stop celebrating Christmas in school. The Chabad candle lighting kind of gave everybody a chance to exhale about the December holidays, that we both have holidays. We like our own holidays. (laughs) I'm not being asked to celebrate Christmas, which I think was the way a lot of Jews from the 50s through the 70s really felt that they were being asked to celebrate Christmas. And what Chabad does by that candle lighting was saying, we're gonna celebrate Hanukkah. You go ahead and celebrate Christmas. We're gonna celebrate Hanukkah. And that changed the conversation and put everybody on a different footing. And people seem to be happier about that.
0: If a holiday has been around long enough, eventually someone's going to try to make money off it. Even in the times of the Talmud, there were people whom you could pay to check your home for chametz, as the Talmud mentions on page 4B. When did Chanukah begin to become commercialized?
1: Well, of course you could always buy a menorah. That's, you know, that's forever. But normally when people talk about Hanukkah being commercialized in the United States, what we're talking about is parallel commercialization, paralleling Christmas. So that means gifts for kids, gifts for family members, decorations. So that kind of thing begins almost, at the same time period after the Civil War, because a couple of things are in place then, after the Civil War, we have a national you know, coast to coast country. That's a big market. You can, you can buy things through catalogs. Uh, so commercializing holidays becomes a great way to market goods to a lot of people. We have letters and uh, letters to editors and commentaries by uh, Jewish editors of Jewish newspapers really being very ambivalent about should we give kids gifts at Hanukkah or should we use Hanukkah as a way to deflect kids from getting gifts at Christmas? We should stop giving our kids gifts at Christmas and give them at Hanukkah. We should not give them at Hanukkah because it commercializes a holiday and makes it not Jewish. We have a lot of different opinions going on, but it's happening because we see people debating it when people are arguing about it, you know it's being done.
0: So interesting. And I read in the um, Atlantic article that I think you wrote in your book that the word presence was one of the earliest words that appeared in English and Yiddish newspapers.
1: By the time the Eastern Europeans show up, they have nothing. And they're not coming in with a language that uses uh, the same alphabet like some of the German immigrants. German Jewish immigrants really could adjust to... English more easily because they at least knew the letters of the language. People who come in with Yiddish, they're, you know, not doing so well adjusting. Uh, And the jobs that are available are not great. You know, they're not all of them putting a pack on their back and someday opening a general store. They're working in factories and the Lower East Sides and in poor neighborhoods. So when they are adjusting to American culture by the, late 19th century, early 20th century. They're adjusting into a December that already has a big Christmas celebration that is linked to material objects for children. And giving your kid a Hanukkah gift is a way that an immigrant, a poor immigrant, could show they're accomplishing something. They are learning about American culture. They're earning a couple of extra bucks. They can do something for their children. So it becomes a measure of an immigrant's progress, which works for them. So we have people using that commercial element at different times for different reasons. So it kind of grows and develops no matter that people are complaining it's too commercial. In the Depression, people were hard put to find any extra money for anything. But as soon as that lifted, gifts come in again.
0: What is the most surprising thing you discovered in your research on the history of Hanukkah in America?
1: Okay, I have to tell you about this because it totally cracked me up. In New Orleans, in the 60s, there was a garden club, which was basically a women's garden club in New Orleans. And the custom among all these women in this club at Christmas time was to decorate their front doors. A Jewish woman, which I have a picture of in my book, I thought was so hilarious, she must have put like brown paper over the front door first because she made, she decorated the entire door with um, a Torah and a menorah lighted. So the Torah is made of eggshells, the menorah is made of hominy grits, and the lights on the menorah are acorns that have been painted gold. And it's beautiful but this is her front door it's the most unusual decoration i encountered i laughed and laughed and laughed this is not somebody doing you know buying the inflatable dreidel mass marketed this person put time and effort into (laughs) collecting the eggshells and painting the acorns and making the hominy grits and gluing it all to her front door. I thought it was wonderful.
0: After a page and a half of proofs and counterproofs, the Talmud finally decides on page 3a that the word or, as used in the opening Mishnah, means night. To explain why the Mishnah chose such a counterintuitive word to say something so simple, the Talmud explains that sometimes it's worth using extra words to express what you mean in a more refined way. While not a perfect parallel, The back and forth reminded me of the annual debate on whether Happy Holidays is really just code for Merry Christmas, why there aren't any Hallmark Hanukkah movies, and so on and so forth. You get the idea. When did Hanukkah enter the cultural discourse?
1: I think it depends where you are. In New York City, it's going to come earlier than other places. But if you're talking national culture, I think you have to be measured with Hallmark because when they start having blue and white wrapping paper and blue and white greeting cards, then you know you've made progress, you know, you, you've hit the big time. But actually, uh, Hallmark didn't suddenly wake up one morning and say, gee, let's serve Jews. In 1926, the Reform Women's Organization, the National Federation for Temple Sisterhood, came up with a Hanukkah card and they approached a card maker, who modified one of his Christmas cards. It had a, one candle and a little dish. And he agreed to print a certain number of those. And the sisterhood members sold the cards as a fundraiser for the National Federation Temple Sisterhood in their branches. And it sold out. They did really well. Next year, they had two cards. And so it actually started with the Jewish sisterhood, again, with the reform group who are really looking for ways to um, provide American Jews with ways of being Jewish that fit American life. And so it's women's groups that really push this um, adaptation. When they're successful, then Hallmark can say, oh, there's a market there and they can step in. And in 2013, when my book came out, there were seven Hanukkah cards by Hallmark, um, and plenty of blue and white wrapping paper. Uh, So I think that's the measure of is it national?
0: I also find it really interesting that, again, it's women really taking the lead there. It's especially interesting to me because Hanukkah is one of the few rituals where the sages explicitly included women in the ritual, even though they're they're generally exclusionary of women and ritual which is interesting. I don't know if it's tied to the, the fact that it's a home-based ritual. Um, they The expression they use is afhein hayu beoto that they were also involved in the miracle. And, but that's that's really an interesting connection to see how that kind of, I guess, manifested in modern times. In that same line about the meaning of the word or, the Talmud explains the position of the two rabbis who argue about that meaning of or, Ravuhuna and Rav Huda. Where Rav Huna was from, people called night light, and where Rav Yehuda was from, people called night like it is. However minor, this point bears out the importance of community in creating shared language and meaning. What messages did religious Jewish communities emphasize in their celebration of Hanukkah?
1: Well, the constant was just what you say when you light the candles. I mean, if we're going to be talking about across all communities, they all say the same blessings when they light the candles. So that's the constant. The miracle of, oh my God, we actually won this war and we got this temple back and we have all this light in. isn't this fantastic that we're still here. I think that that's really, for a lot of people, the miracle of Hanukkah is we're still here to light the candles, (laughs) particularly after the 20th century. Which was a heck of a century. Um, the miracle is that there are still Jews lighting the candles. People use Hanukkah in a different kind of way. I mean, it ends up being—you know—it's still Hanukkah, but the whole question of dedication emerges again as a question in a new way. And I think actually, that's that's the secret of Hanukkah: is it's most obvious. Attribute, which is that it means dedication and it's a holiday about being rededicated. And so, whatever cultural moment American Jews are in, that question emerges again. So, I think that that's really the common, the most common thread is that however much outside culture impinges on Hanukkah, or however Jews find different ways. To celebrate Hanukkah, however you do it, you're doing it. And it's been going on for a long time and we're still doing it.
0: Right. That's a really important point to mention the the connection of Hanukkah to Jewish survival, which I'm sure was, you know, felt more strongly after the Holocaust. You are a studier of how traditions changed and were shaped over time. As we kind of look forward to hopefully, you know, post pandemic and, you know, different trends in American Jewish life, what do you think Hanukkah will look like?
1: You know, it's really bad to ask a historian about the future. (laughs) We're really bad at predicting the future. (laughs) And people always ask us to do that. So I would not count Hanukkah out by no means. And I think what I've learned is that because it's so open to modification because it's so simple and it can be elaborated in so many different ways. People can make it work for them however they need to do that. And the idea of, you know, are you dedicated or not? That's a really simple question. And so I, I think it's I think it's going to continue for sure. And I think there are going to be many new ways of elaborating it that we haven't seen yet. And that'll be fine because that'll be meaningful to those people.
0: Are you dedicated or not? It's a beautiful way to sum up the message of Hanukkah. Dr. Diane Ashton, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. i had a lot of fun.
0: Between episodes, you can keep up with Interleaved on Facebook and Twitter. If you like what you heard, leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. Special thanks to our executive producer, Adina Kaur. Come back next time for another deep dive. And a happy Hanukkah to all our listeners, however you celebrate.